welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Brightnika. So Sarah, obviously one of the biggest stories of this summer have been the wildfires that have been uh, devastating so much of the country. You know, really not just a West Coast thing anymore, something that's happening in almost every province and territory uh, and something that we haven't discussed yet on this podcast, but I think it's about time that we start to dig into this issue a little bit more. Totally. Yeah. The whole country is on high alert. People that, you know, haven't really had to deal with air pollution, luckily, fortunately, um, are, you know, suddenly responding to air quality warnings. It's been really scary stuff. And I guess just to wrap your head around this or help wrap our head around this collectively, right? I mean, 20 million acres burned as of kind of the last count. I'm sure the number has gone up a ton since then. And we can get into that today. Um, over, you know, 160,000 people evacuated and over a billion in firefighting costs. And those are just some of the numbers that we're talking about here. So yeah, I think it's important that we give some time to talk about the impact of the wildfires on the industries that are most impacted and some solutions as we start to think about preparing for next year and how we're going to mitigate against such a terrible start to the season again. Yeah, well, that's just it. It doesn't seem like it's a problem that's going to just go away. Uh, It seems like it's something that's going to be with us for the years to come. So I think it's important that we start to understand its uh, impact on our economy and our communities. So we have a, a great guest on to talk about that today. Derek Nybor is the president and CEO of the Forest Products Association of Canada. Derek, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I think to kick us off here, maybe we can just talk a little bit about the scale and the intensity of the wildfire problem this year, because it seems so much bigger than it has been in the past. Can you just walk us through some of the numbers around that? Yeah, it's it's been brutal. I don't think there's another word for it. Um, we're, you know, over the last 20 years, we've averaged about two and a half million hectares burned across the country in an average fire season. Uh, right now, we're at nearly 13 million already, and we're just at the end of July. Um, and to give you a sense as to what almost 13 million hectares look like, like that's almost all of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia in terms wow. of land base. Uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, if you did the math, would probably be cl- a little over 14 million hectares, but that's that's the footprint that we're talking about. The other thing I'd say is our registered professional foresters that are out there to manage our forests sustainably for the long term, we only harvest about 760,000 hectares uh, every year across the country in an entire year. Uh, and of course, we replant more than what we take. But if you look at the ratio of what we would sustainably harvest versus what's burned, 16 times what we harvest sustainably every year has been burned already. And some people are saying that could go up to 32 million. Um, so it's the, the, the magnitude of this is significant. And I think the other thing that made this year very different from other years is it was happening almost everywhere at the same time which really challenged normally provinces can deploy, you know, there's an outbreak or there's a, there's a, there's a massive fire in Alberta, Saskatchewan, BC are going to come in and, and help their Alberta neighbors out this year. It was happening everywhere at the same time. Um, so, so the magnitude of this, um, and the, how this has just overwhelmed the system is something unlike we've ever seen. So I, I also want to get into the reasons around why, it is so much worse this year, but I guess before we we do that, could you talk a little bit about the impact on people's communities and uh, I guess the people who are fighting the fires this year? Like, how is that being felt in different parts of the country? How many people are impacted? Could you give us a sense of scale around that? Yeah, and I, I think what's also different this year is how many more people are being impacted in different ways, right? So if you're in a if you're in a forested community and Saguenay Lac Saint Jean or uh, Quebec or in in Prince George BC, uh, you know it might mean you're going to be evacuated for a few days. Hopefully, you know your house and community infrastructure will be protected. Uh, your mill might go down for a few days. People need to be evacuated. The mill kind of shuts down. So you have those kind of practical 
I have to leave my home. I can't go to work kind of concerns. Um, for our forestry workers as well, they, they kind of turn into first responders, often building fire breaks around the mills and in the communities that they operate in. So the forestry workers and, and mill workers often will, will turn right into first responders working with emergency response locally. So I think that's one area. I, I think another area that's been impacted has been air quality. I remember I've, you know, I, I grew up in Pembroke in the Ottawa Valley. I live in Ottawa now. So I've spent, you know, I'll be 50 next year. So I spent most of my life in Eastern Ontario. I've never seen smoky skies in, in Ottawa or the Valley uh, in my lifetime. Uh, I remember being out in Vernon, BC a few years ago during a bad fire season. And, and there must have been about a half an inch of, 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 of ash on the windshield of my rental car, right? Like as, as, a, as a guy from Ontario in the interior of BC, that was shocking to me. It was actually quite eerie, you know, to see not only to think about what that does to air quality and 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 people inhaling that, but but also just how ominous it was to see that this much ash is on a windshield in a in a town when a when a fire is is a couple hundred kilometers away. So you know, I think it's affected different people in different ways. Um, but this year, definitely, I would say the the fact that. The big fires over a million hectares burn in Northwest Territories. We had a fire a couple of weeks ago in Ungava Bay in Northern Quebec. Like this is like the bridge or the, the, the before the water body that gets you to Baffin Island. Like the, these fires are happening now in places where they've never happened before. And I think that's, that's another part, big part of this that's very concerning. This wildfire season is so much worse than anything that we've seen before. Yeah, this is one of, I, this is an important question. And it also wedges us in a little bit of the climate believers versus the climate deniers, right? So I, I think it's really, really important because we have seen fires across the country that have started because of campers who haven't put out their fires or a quad or a four-wheeler in the bush that sets off a spark and the driver might not even know that they started that fire, but it, w- but it was started in, in, in a dry bush by, by, by an off-road vehicle. Um, or you're going to have lightning strikes, or you're going to have, as in the case of Nova Scotia, some kids who are burning tires that, 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 that got out of control where, so, you know, most of the fires in Quebec were started by lightning. Um, so what we've seen is if you look at some of the work done by really great schools like Thompson Rivers University and Kamloops, you know, you're probably seeing it's about 50, 50, but half the fires are kind of naturally started by, by lightning and other, the other half would be by human causes. But where, where the changing climate comes into this is the conditions at which, even if it's a fire from a campground or a quad, it, it's the dryness of the, of the ground and the bush and the trees that is just making that explosive. And we, you know, this year in most parts of the country, we had less snow. We had a much hotter earlier spring. We, you know, fire season was starting kind of late April, May in Canada this year. That, 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 this is normally when things, we still got a bit of snow on the ground and things are still running off. But, but, but that's where the change in climate comes into play here. So what have people kind of try to, try to almost wedge me on this question? Is it climate? Is it not climate? It's both. Um, there, there's no doubt that human behaviors need to be better. Uh, people need to take much more care. If, 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 if conditions are very dry, you shouldn't be taking your quad into the bush, to be really honest. But, but the other fact is just that the, 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 the drought-like conditions, the almost choked forests that we have in some parts of, of the country are, are a real problem and, and, and climate has had a role to play in those conditions being so dry. So it's not that more people are camping or burning tires. It's just that the uptick is that much greater and faster because of the, the dryness. And then I wonder what in terms of the response efforts, why is it so difficult to mitigate against a fire that's picking up? Why has it been so hard to to get control of in so many parts of the country? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a, it's it's another good question, and 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 you know, I think a, a provincial governments that really lead the response in this. So uh, some uh, some you know, forests are under the purview of provincial governments in Canada. So, but there's a lot of fed provincial territorial collaboration when it comes to emergency response, and and provinces are going to make decisions based on is 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 the fire near homes is it because because right now so right now today we have 1045 fires burning in Canada 671 of them are under, are out of control so 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 671 out of 1045 fires are out of control 
So there needs to be some triaging here. We we just don't have the resources to fight every fire. And what and, and, is an out of control fire? So you can help us understand. Is it just yeah. when people hmm. throw their hands up in the air and they say this is this isn't even worth it? What happens well, then? No, it wouldn't be that it's not worth it to fight it, but it's just that this thing is 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 really unpredictable and it's moving fast. Um, and 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 the calculus that that provincial governments and emergency responders need to need to make in terms of triaging and prioritizing where we're going to put resources is going to be where are people living where is there absolutely critical infrastructure in northern communities where where telecommunications infrastructure might be at risk uh, so you know it's 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 a tough decision there's been a lot of debate about this there's been a lot of criticism why was this fire left to burn why wasn't this one you know why wasn't this fire put out more quickly why are you fighting that fire versus this fire and, and it speaks to the resource challenge. So, so right now we've got about 5,500 wildland fighters, uh, firefighters in Canada. Um, you talk to, if you talk to Mike Flanagan at Thompson Rivers University, he'd say we're about 2,500 short. We got, in addition to those fire, we have 3,400 international firefighters from places like Australia, South Africa, Portugal, Spain, fighting uh, the U.S., fighting fires here right now. So definitely in terms of what's the response, we, we need better infrastructure and better staffing. But but there's also some important, I would say, proactive measures that be, can be taken around forest management, prescribed burns, getting more money to municipalities to fire break and protect their communities. Um, it, 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 it's, and, it's, and, and it's not going to be cheap. That word forest management, that's something that I keep reading about as I read stories about these fires, uh, but I don't really understand what it is. Like, what is forest management? What does that look like in practice? Yeah, so l- let's step back. So if you consider, there's about 9,000 trees in Canada for every Canadian. So we're, we're blessed with, with a tremendous amount of resources, uh, and we're, we're one of the biggest forested countries in the world. Like, we're just a massive land base. But, 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 but not all of the forests in Canada are being managed. So about half of our forests are in, in, in the far north or above what we would call the northern cut line. Um, or you have, uh, you know, national parks or whatnot that are protected areas. So about half of our forests are off the working land base. So I shouldn't say that, actually, because in the remote north, you're going to have some indigenous communities that are using forests around for, 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 for local values for to provide materials to get berries those kinds of things but 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 simplistically about half of our forests are not under formal management out of the remaining you know 50 percent about half of that managed forest is under some kind of a conservation measure at any time of the day and and or any time of the year and that's the that's the piece where the, the move to respect whole of ecosystems uh all living birds mammals and fish in the forest uh buffering around waterways, protecting wetlands, those kinds of things happen within the managed forest. So that, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the landscape uh, in Canada. But in, in terms of forest management, and, and this is an, it, it becomes an issue of social license in our sector. You know, I was just, um, I was just touring northern Saskatchewan a couple of weeks ago, um, and, and the, you know, the, the, there are a lot of harvests where, uh, and, and a harvest of a forest is not pretty. Like it, it's, it's a pretty ugly looking scene. If you look at a forest after it's just harvested, but, but when I was in Saskatchewan, I was able to tour a forest that was harvested two years ago, 20 years ago, and 40 years ago. Um, and the management of that forest is really akin to renewal. Um, you, 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 of course, get the economic opportunity for that local community of harvesting and making timber and paper products and bioenergy and all of those products that come out of there. But you also renew that forest because, uh, especially across the boreal, uh, the boreal trees only live to about 80 or 100 years old. Then, then they die and they turn into carbon and methane emitters. So, so, so the beauty of forestry is managing that forest at the right time to, to support the ecosystem there, um, but also to, to get those trees out before they fall off the stump and turn into emitters. And one of the issues we have in the boreal is about 60% of the trees in the boreal forest are now between the ages of 61 and 140 years old. We have a lot of older forests, and I'm not talking about old growth type forests on on the BC coast. I'm talking about trees that are only probably going to live about 80 years. Um, so, so as those forests become older, they become more susceptible to drought, to pests, 
to, to wind blowdowns or to fire. So, so the active management of those forests, um, is, is really critical to supporting forest health and resiliency. And, and that's one of the issues that's, it's a big part of the dialogue right now. What more do we need to do? How can we, how can we better thin these forests? How can we get some of the dead and dying stuff out before it becomes a big problem? So, so, so the role of forest management, uh, is, is, is going to become even more important, um, across the country as we, um, as we, as we deal with these worsening fire patterns. Hmm. So basically we're talking about planning for cutting down trees as they get to a certain age and planting new trees and that whole cycle. Is that basically what's involved in this? Yeah. And, and, and it's, and it kickstarts the carbon cycle again, because older trees don't absorb as much carbon as younger trees. So, so, so you lock the carbon into that long lived wood product. You get it out of the bush. You build homes with it. You build community centers with it. You use the bark and the chips and the shavings to make pulp, to make paper, to make bioenergy, you know, working to get value from every part of that tree. And then you replant on a either a two to one or three to one ratio. Uh, and then, and then the forest is renewed. Uh, but in that planning, it's really important. You got to be considering, as I said, all the mammals and birds and fish that live there. And that's why if there's an eagle's nest, well, there needs to be a buffer around in this area can't be touched. There's, there's that level of care and, and community consultation. Uh, you, you think about forestry in Canada, it's, it's, it is about local community engagement and input into those plans. That's, that's really critical because more than 80% of the land that foresters operate on in Canada, it's, it's, it's crown land. Um, it's, it's public mm -hmm. land. Um, so, so that makes Canada very different. You look at the U S the U S is about 80% private land forestry. Uh, so a very, very different type of a model than, than what we have here uh, in Canada. So who's responsible for coming up with those plans and, and I suppose implementing them and overseeing this process is there some central body that's saying we need to have things planted here and trees cut down here and so on or is it more of an ad hoc uh situation how does that work yeah so it starts with the provinces so 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 before a tree is even planned to be harvested there needs to be an approved plan with the provincial government so that that's the first step um things in quebec are a bit different in in quebec the government writes the plan at this time uh, in the other in the other provinces and, and territories across the country, um, the 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 foresters would write the plan and submit it to the province for approval. Um, the other thing that goes into that plan is uh, local science uh, assessments of water bodies, assessments of uh, you know what were previous historical fires in that area. Are there any species at risk living there? So so basically, a whole of ecosystem analysis goes into the plan. Um, uh, and then, and then, um, th we have something in, in, in forestry in Canada called third party certification. So above the rigor that goes into those plans scientifically and, and, and in terms of all the mapping that's done, then you have the provincial government approval. And then on top of that, there's independent third party certification. So there's FSC certification, SFI certification. So there's another layer of accountability and auditing that happens above provincial rules and regs. Um, and, 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 and Canada has, we've got almost 40% of the world's third party independently certified forests. So that's another, that's just another commitment around sustainability. And it's another reason why customers and people from around the world like buying forest products from here. Are the foresters almost always private companies? So it could be a mix. So, so to be a forester, it's, it's a, it is a, a registered professional designation. So there's duties and obligations that, that registered professional foresters work under. We've also got ecologists and biologists, of course, working, uh, water experts working, um, on the forestry teams, but it can be a mix. You have a lot of, you know, you have, you're going to have people who work for, um, uh, who work for forestry companies. Uh, a lot of our forests in northwestern Ontario um, and in northern Saskatchewan, northern Manitoba are, are managed by indigenous corporations. Um, so you'll have independent contractors. So it's a bit of a mix. Uh, you also have government foresters uh, who who work with who work with the sector on, on on planning and whatnot. In terms of kind of permitting and the way that I guess like the work is rolled out, is it kind of like the fishing industry? Are there any uh, parallels to be drawn there? 
Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I know about enough about the fishing industry just to say that. But what I what I would say is where I would say there is similarities. You're monitoring and assessing the stocks, you know, and 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 you know where there are declining fish stocks, you're going to have less fishing. Where there are declining or less trees to be harvested, you're going to have less harvesting. And and that's what we've really seen in BC. BC over the last ten years has been ground zero uh, for forest disturbance. We had a we had a pine beetle that ripped through British Columbia that chewed up probably about sixty percent of the pine trees. Uh, we had massive fires that have gone through there, uh, and that's meant that we have um, a lot of newer growing forests in 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 northern and in, in the interior BC, uh, and that also means that 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 less can be harvested. Uh, because we need to keep those forests as forests forever. So, you know, I think that's the, where I would draw the parallel in terms of in turn, in, ensuring that you're not going to deplete your stocks um, and ensure that we can keep our forests forever. The, the, the downside of that, and, and, and many British Columbian families have lived this, unfortunately, is we've had a lot of mill closures uh, because, because that does mean if, if, there's not, if there are not enough trees to feed the mills, the mills are going to go down accordingly. Uh, and unfortunately, we've seen that in, in British Columbia. But but I would say, um, you know, in the rest of Canada, you know, we're 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 you know, we're I'd say we're pretty optimistic, even in BC, in terms of mass timber and some of the emerging industries there. But 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 the big assessment is going to be coming out of these fires, right? So one of the first thing that's going to be happening as 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 these fires come under control is, you know, was it twenty year forests that were destroyed, or was it eighty year forests? Um, is there anything that's salvageable? Uh, was the fire so hot that um, will the forest be able to naturally regenerate? You know, we're, we're often worried when you have really, really hot fires like we're seeing this year about soil quality being damaged and, and the forest just won't regenerate on its own because the, because the soil is so scorched. So a lot of assessing to come. Uh, and then that will impact in terms of how much can be harvested. You know, how does that impact the timber supply? How will that impact lumber prices in Canada? Uh, I, you know, I think there's a lot of, I think analysts out there are surmising right now for sure, but, 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 but that's pretty important work that's going to be happening in the weeks and months ahead. That makes me wonder, you know, when a fire tears through a forest, can you regenerate those trees on any sort of timeline that make sense for uh the forestry sector like does it does it make sense for them to go in and try to uh plant again there or is that land that's just sort of not useful for forestry anymore yeah so uh, again a really really important question because this exposes a bit of a gap that we have so so that that 750,000 hectares that our foresters are harvesting sustainably every year, that th those forests are returned and regrown. That, that, that's an automatic, that's a condition of operating. You cannot be harvesting unless you're replacing more than you take. That's the, that's the law in Canada. So, so that's the first thing. The issue is if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm lumber company A and I have what we would call a forest management unit or a, or a tenure or a license to operate in a certain area, and if those trees burn before I can harvest them, then it's up to the provincial government to figure it out because it's 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 public land. So mm. so this is where I think programs like the two billion tree program um, and 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 others can really close a gap. But there's going to be a growing gap here because a lot of these forests uh, are probably going to be need to be manually replanted and replenished again, depending on how. But the, the other first assessment is, is, is there any stuff in there that needs to come out based on local community input for fear that the, the, the dead wood's going to be on the ground for a year and then be kindling for fire in 2024? Um, so it's, 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 a, it's, it's a real, that, that assessment of how bad was the burn in that forest is really, really important. But the other part here is, I think that the 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 importance of the tree planting agenda, because if if we harvested an industry, we will more than replace it. If it burns, that's either up then to natural regeneration or or the provincial government working with the local community to try to bring that forest back. I want to stay on this piece for a moment of what happens next, because this is the first year that we've seen wildfires like this. Obviously, the playbook that we've been following for the years before this just doesn't apply anymore. So in your view, do you have enough information yet to 
start making recommendations on what needs to change exactly to support forestry, to support maybe the other sectors that are also indirectly impacted by the scale of these wildfires this year? Yeah, 100% we do. We, we, have, a, we have a lot of recommendations. Like I said, they're not going to be cheap. Um, and I think we also need to recognize that this these fires are happening near urban communities where there's no commercial forestry happening. They're happening in the managed forest and they're happening in the unmanaged forest. So these fires are not discriminating or this is not all in areas where there's zero forestry operations. These are not all fires where there's just forestry happening. This is happening everywhere, which means you're going to need different interventions. The, 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 the first one is firefighting resources, plains, infrastructure. As, as I said at the beginning, that normally provinces can kind of buddy up and help each other everybody was in crisis almost at the same time. So you just didn't have that flexibility or that, 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 that ability to, to divert resources elsewhere, which is why the international response has been so, uh, so appreciated. Um, th- the second part I would say is we are getting very, very concerned with how old a lot of our boreal forests are becoming, how dense they're becoming, how dry they're becoming. And without proactive management, we're going to have more fires in those areas. And I think that's, again, that's an important social license, community-based conversation. A, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to see a harvest. I don't want to see trees cut down. Well, you know, I think, I think people around the, uh, in a number of communities across the country today are now starting to look at that a little bit differently. Harvesting, thinning, proactively managing is absolutely critical. It needs to be done in a way that, 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 that respects age classes of forests and all living things in that forest. But managing the, the stuff that's becoming so dense is, 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 is really important. Building markets to use that wood or what we would call low-grade wood that probably doesn't have a lot of value in, 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 in lumber or pulp markets. But how can we support with bioenergy facilities and biofuel plants and, and, and build more markets for that product to, 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 make, to, to drive some value in terms of making the economic sense to get that out of the bush? The other two areas, and we could go on for, for, for hours here, but, but, but the other two areas I'll, I'll highlight are um, indigenous and prescribed burns. Th- this is an area, because if you, you think of a fire, quite often the, the fires are, are getting to the treetops because you have so much thick, dry stuff on the ground and the fire can just jump up, up, up the tree. Uh, if, if we can manage that vegetation, now I'm not saying vacuum the entire forest floor. There's a, there's a lot of important, you know, important ecological and, and environmental reasons why you want to have some stuff on the floor. You want to have berries for picking and, and a lot of other things. But again, based on local input and local need, we really believe a return to prescribed burns. Uh, as, and, and these in a lot of indigenous communities are, are part of the culture. We, we got away from that. And I think we need to, we need to, we need to look look to return to prescribed burns. Uh, the last piece I'd say for our friends in the municipal sector, the municipal governments are the most poorly funded, most understressed parts of our government structure in Canada. Um, you talk to any mayors, communities like Williams Lake, BC, high-level Alberta that have had catastrophic fires in the last 10 years, they'll tell you that there's a lot of appetite locally to continue to proactively what we would call reduce fuel loads uh, or basically thin, clean things up, you know, uh, thin around the community so forests aren't so dense. But but after a time, um, that's expensive to do. And we need water and sewage upgrades. We need the hockey arena to be fixed. So so our municipalities need a lot more financial support uh, from federal and provincial governments to fireproof their communities um, and, and, and a big part of that work is also what we would call fire shed mapping. So, you know, similar to how we do flood mapping in, in Canada to, to assess where are flood risks happening. A similar mapping needs to be done, I would say, more aggressively in Canada to identify where are those real hotspots or, or risks for the future and how can we get in there and thin them out and reduce the risk. And, and this is an area where the United States has developed a very aggressive crisis plan uh, coming out of uh, brutal fires in in, in California and, and and up the West Coast to turn to more active management than they have before. Yeah, maybe we can talk about what some other countries who also have large forestry sectors are doing and maybe doing differently. Uh, you know, I read your piece in the Hill Times recently where you talked about what some of the Nordic countries were doing. Are there lessons that we can learn and apply 
uh, here. Like it seems like we're having the worst problem with it this year. Um, what do we need to change, and what can we learn from them? Yeah. So, so uh, it, the 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 Nordics have really, I would say they've they've really lapped us in this space. Now, let's be clear. Uh, you know, Sweden and Finland and, and Norway are a lot smaller land base land base wise than Canada, right? We've got a much bigger land base to worry about, and that makes it a bit more challenging. And in those countries, you have the majority of their populations anchored around Stockholm or Helsinki or Oslo, and and so supply chains are much easier to navigate. Mm. Costs are much more manageable. So I think that's 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 the big asterisk here. Uh, that said, in, if you looked at a similar plot of land in Canada versus Sweden. Uh, the Swedes are getting five to seven times the amount of wood out of that same plot of land. They have what we would call in the business a much more intensive approach to forest management. They are they're harvesting more, um, they're taking more out than we are in Canada. Uh, consequently, their disturbance rates are like 50 to 60 times less than ours. Like the, the, the fire is a very minimal problem in, in, in Scandinavia. And part of that is because the forests are so actively managed. So, you know, this is something, as, as I said, I'm, I'm not advocating for the exact, but, 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 the, but the premise is that, that managing more is going, to, uh, is going to address the risk of worsening fires, that that's absolutely critical. Um, I'd say where we're looking to the Americans, um, as I said a bit earlier, was on their crisis management response, how proactive they're getting around mapping fire sheds identifying areas that they think are at risk of catastrophic fire and going in there and doing some harvesting and some thinning. Um, as I said, that's not, that's not cheap. Um, in, in Canada, we do, we do some of that, what we would call at the uh, wildland urban interface. So if you look at a community, you know, that's, you know, kind of between kind of the community and, and the wilderness, you know, that creating a break and kind of thinning in between there. But when you start looking at, you know, northern Quebec and northern Ontario and, and, and it's, 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 there are a lot of forests. As I said, 9,000 trees for every Canadian. There's a lot of trees out there. But, but, but I think a more deliberate and a more, a, a more proactive approach, uh, to, to, to getting more, more stuff out of the bush, um, uh, is, is, is what the U.S. is looking at. And again, this was coming out of basically the, 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 the awful fires in California in areas where they had pulled back on forest management. So listen, I'll be, I'll be, you know, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying we need to cut everything down. Like, you know, listen, uh, effective conservation is absolutely critical. Um, having our protected areas is absolutely critical, but, but, but for us in the industry, forest management and conservation go together. Uh, it is about a whole of ecosystem approach. Uh, and, 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 and we believe really strongly that we need to manage our forests more, not less. I haven't seen a lot about the government response at any level. Is there any movement happening there? Yeah, it's really, I, I think we've been, um, we've been really letting the government focus more on containment and saving lives and saving infrastructure and communities. We're not at I, that point yet, really. Yeah, you know, I think we're pivoting there. I, you know, I think we can all walk and chew gum at the same time, right? So I'm not saying we're not doing that, but I think there's a there, there's a fair bit of respect for the crisis that's still unfolding for far too many Canadians across the country. And, and I, I think we got to get this under control before we start talking really seriously about changes. That said, I think we're really close um, to there. Um, but, 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 but those are some of the discussions, you know, I've already reached out, um, uh, in conversation with Federation of Canadian Municipalities to see how can we, how can we help them working with uh, a number of our indigenous partners and organizations across the country on, on what role, you know, they can be playing more. Um, it's, it's, it, it this is going to take a, a, a lot of partnership and the feds and the provinces and territories are going to need to come together here. This is not a partisan issue. It, it, it really shouldn't be. We need we need to have a, a complete relook at our at our emergency preparedness when it comes to fire in this country, and and part of that is is response, which which has been the best effort possible, but clearly not adequate enough um, to 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 protect communities and 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 um, and air quality, etc. Um, uh, uh, but but. You know, I think we also need really to be thinking about some of those more proactive measures as well in terms of, you know, the prescribed burns, the fire breaks, the, the more active management, that, that mapping to assess where the next big fire can happen. 
but it's also about, like I said, it's, there's going to be need to be a really quick assessment here so that the stuff that's left behind or the stuff that's, you know, the trees that are damaged from this fire don't dry out over the next year and become, you know, become ignite the fires for next year. And it, it, this is also an issue in place like Nova Scotia coming out of, out of, uh, out of Hurricane Fiona. You know, there's, there's still a lot of trees down in Nova Scotia from, from the hurricane. And if there's not a plan to salvage uh, those uh, or in some way get those out uh, of, of the forest, uh, you know, that again provides uh, another risk. So yeah, lo- lots on the plate of the government here. And I, I think we've been, um, I think we've been trying to give them their space to do what they need to do to work with international partners to, to get the situation under control. But, um, you know, rediscussing a general strategy and a lot more talking and no action is not an option anymore. I think we, we're going to be expecting this fall to see the, our governments come together with a very, very clear plan. I want to drill down for a bit into the uh, impact of this on the forestry sector itself. Who would you say in that space is most impacted by these fires? Is it the loggers, the sawmills? You know, who feels this the most? Yeah, I, I think I think the magnitude of the impact is going to be known in time. I don't think we know right now. I think if you had any of our industry uh, company executives on the line right now, I think they would tell you, I know they would tell you that the safety and health of their employees is the top consideration. I know, you know, talk with a company, a couple of companies who had to take their mills down for 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 a number of days, making sure that those employees were paid, making sure that those employees were in safe accommodations when they were evacuated from their homes. Uh, you know, that's the priority that has been the pri- priority right now and continues to be the priority in those areas that are, that are, that are, that are under stress. Um, I, I think going forward, the entire industry um, will be impacted by this. Um, to what extent that will be determined. But the other thing about our sector that's, I think, pretty special is how integrated it is. So, you know, you might, you know, a, a sawmill, needs a pulp mill or a bioenergy facility to send its wood chips to. Think about the tree coming out of the forest. It goes to the sawmill and and that's the high value product, right? That's what we build our homes, our schools, our seniors' residences. Like that's how we build our communities and that's a low carbon, carbon storing material. Um, but what's important to the financial model of the sawmill is that the bark, the sawdust, the chips that are left over, that they can find economic value and find a home for that. And, and, and that turns into the pulp or paper mill down the street. It becomes the bioenergy facility. It might be a, a landscaper that's going to buy that to turn it into mulch. So, so in our sector, you know, if, if a sawmill doesn't have as many logs going into it, that's really bad news for the pulp mill. So, so, so it is that, you know, the old adage of if, you know, the U.S. economy catches a, has sneezes, Canada catches a cold. It, it, it's mm. the similar kind of thing here in our forest sector in terms of the interdependency along the value chain. Uh, and then, of course, you know, that will impact logging tr- contractors and whatnot. I, I think we'll see, I think we'll see a, a much variability. Uh, again, the, is it an old forest? Is it a young forest that's been harvested? Uh, how much can be salvaged right now? And, and uh, so, you know, I hesitate to kind of, talk about what the impacts are going to be but but i would say that everybody in the sector um is is going to feel the impacts of this for sure it's just they're just just the magnitude of it is there any discussion about parallels between this and the experience with the pandemic when a lot of these sawmills had to stop operating for covid related reasons and some of the supply chain issues that that created you know the price of lumber shooting up um is that something that people should have on their radar yeah, you know, I'll leave that. I'll leave that to the analysts and and some of the bank people to talk about. That. But this is what I'll say: the, the pandemic. It's a it's 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 a great comment in, in that the pandemic was just such a you know we had mills going down. We were like any other industry, right? Like, are, are our employees going to die? Are their partners and spouses going to die? Are their kids at risk? Like, you know, March twenty twenty, there was just there was a lot of panic. And and what happened in our sector, which was really really unique, was that. You know the Home Depots, the Lowe's, the people who the the the, the companies the, that buy our products stopped all the orders because stores were starting to close. And then, but then about six weeks later, we started to realize people are working at home. Uh, people have a bit more disposable. Uh, you know, some people have more disposable income. Those who are, who are fortunate enough to be homeowners, so people started renovating. People started moving out into the country and building onto things. So so we were we were down for a while. But the surge in demand was something we could never catch up to. It, 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 w- it was quite incredible. 
Now, for our industry, you know, that means that a lot of people who did home renovations two years ago, two or three years ago, aren't going to do them for the next couple of years, right? So, so there has been a, a lag of an impact there in, in terms of market dynamics. But, but for sure, I think once the assessments are done around timber availability and, and whatnot, um, you know, but luckily, other than a few mills that had to take some downtime, our mills have been able to operate. Uh, like most parts of the economy, things are pretty soft right now. Um, but, but there's, there's, there's no doubt this is going to have an impact on supply. Um, and, and, and in time, you know, what that impact could be on prices. I, as I said, I think I'll let the analysts, uh, deal with that, but, but, but definitely, uh, an issue that's, that's pretty unique to, to, to Canada right now in terms of the impact on, 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 on the forest sector. I just have a follow-up, um, about broadening out the understanding maybe of the of the sector for anyone listening that could be taking away a lot of in, a lot of information about the forestry industry but wondering um you know a maybe how what is the economic kind of impact or significance of of the forestry industry in Canada and maybe what are some of the sectors that are connected to forestry um to you know the lumber industry that you know you wouldn't be maybe an obvious uh line that you would draw yeah, so so I'll, I'll say I grew up in in the Ottawa, Upper Ottawa Valley in in Pembroke, Ontario, which is about you know an hour forty northwest of Ottawa. My grandpa worked in forestry. My dad worked in forestry. We have a lot of small family owned mills in 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 the area. Um, and I saw firsthand growing up just the inherent sustainability and just that this was you know this was just a really great you know very environmentally friendly industry that was about community input. And there's a lot of debate over how a forest should be managed, but at the end of the day, there was a lot of a lot of a lot of just understanding of how how important the sector is and the good work that it does. Um, I think we're you know with every passing day we're 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 a day away from the stories of my grandpa worked at the mill, my grandma worked at the mill, my mom and dad worked at the mill, which is kind of the which is kind of how it is for people who grew up in a town like I grew up in. But 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 I think our our industries one of our industry's biggest challenges is, is especially with with more new Canadians coming here who might not know us more urban you know our urban communities getting bigger. Just that understanding of, 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 of the sector. And I think, I think the fire, I think the tragedy of the fire piece, uh, has been an opportunity to talk about forest management. I, I also think some of the new mass timber buildings that are going up in, in places like Toronto and Vancouver is a way to connect with more urban audiences. And I also think the kind of renaissance that is urban forestry is, is, is people are seeing the emerald ash borer, uh, you know, impact their trees in their community and, and they're seeing the importance of, you know, sometimes you need to have intervention uh, to prevent outbreaks from spreading and whatnot. So, you know, I guess that's my, my, my first comment is, is, is just around that, 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 that ability to connect with urban audiences, to talk about why the sector is so important um, and, 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 and how it kind of relates to everyday urban life in terms of the products that we use and, and the ability of just the ability of Canada to provide for its people. And we want to address an affordable housing crisis. I, 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 the, the, the best and cheapest, most efficient way to do that is with Canadian lumber, uh, not with lumber from Arkansas. Um, so, you know, so I think that's the first part on the economic piece, um, you know, just under an $80 billion industry. I think that would surprise a lot of people. Um, you know, the, 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 the ongoing dispute at the port of Vancouver, you know, we're about 17, 16, 17% of the volumes that go through that port. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's critical for our industry. And that, that dispute has been very, very costly and very frustrating for us. Um, over 200,000 full-time workers in our community, you know, those, those are really good paying family supporting jobs. And, you know, I was just up in, in Northern Ontario for a few days that last week. I was in Northern Saskatchewan the week before. I'm telling you, places like Cochrane, Ontario, um, Kapuskasing, Ontario, Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. Man, if, if we don't have these forestry jobs, there's not a lot, there, there's not a lot else there to sustain those communities. And, and, and we've got about, about 600 of those communities across the country that rely on the industry. So, yeah, a, still a real critical economic driver for the country. Um, I think I think where we need to continue to do more work is is talking to our friends in in urban centers about about who we are and what we do and and the sustainability attributes of our uh, of our sector uh, and the importance of of, of doing uh, as much of that production right here in Canada. Okay, well, Derek, I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and explaining all this to us. Very interesting and informative. 
Uh, Taylor, can I can I just close with I I want to I just I want to I I want to provide a, a shout out to to those on the front lines. Um, I think it's really really important. Um, I also want to recognize um, the lives that have been lost. This is um, this is not a normal fire year uh, in a lot of ways, but but in the the loss of life on the front lines is is something. Um, Devin Gale, nineteen years old. Ryan Gould, forty one years old. Adam Eden, 25 years old. Um, just in the last couple of days, we had a 25-year-old man from Ontario uh, killed in British Columbia. Um, and Carter Vi, a nine-year-old uh, who had an asthma attack because of air quality issues. So um, I think it's important um, that we share those names and keep them in our thoughts and recognize that those, you know, thousands of, of, of men and women on the front line today are, uh, we want uh, we we want to make sure they get home to their families. Uh, so I think recognizing the incredible sacrifice and the selflessness of their work is just something I don't think we should forget. Absolutely. No, I think that's a great note to leave it off on because this is a, a very human story. Uh, even if we talk about the economics of it, it is about people at the end of the day. So thank you, Derek. Appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Taylor and Sarah. I appreciate it. Okay, well, such an interesting conversation with Derek. Um, you know, it's a, uh, to me, I think one of the positive takeaways or sort of optimistic takeaways from it was that there are things that we could be doing differently and maybe doing better to prevent these wildfires from being so bad in the future. You know, it's felt pretty bleak for some parts of the summer, especially when, you know, the city is... Uh, enveloped in in smoke and so much of the country is enveloped in smoke and it kind of feels yeah. like there's nothing you can do about it but uh maybe there are some things that we can do about it and we can learn from some other countries that aren't having such a big problem with it this year what did you think yeah, sarah well we you, we love solutions on this podcast we like to hear about interesting ideas it sound like it sounds like there's you know there are some models that I guess are more, more focused towards more active management. So, you know, that is, we'll see if that's possible given the resource constraints and the land that we're covering. But um, I'm with you. I think a lot of us, especially in kind of like central to Eastern Canada have been really shocked this year. It's the first time that, you know, Derek said this already, but it's like the first time that we've even had to worry about smoke in the air, pollution being at the level that it is. And I think it's it's understandably freaking a ton of people out. And so I thought this conversation was valuable in terms of kind of just unpacking how this problem came about, some solutions that could, you know, help maybe mitigate wildfires in the wildfire seasons to to come. But I think what's really striking to me still is just like the amount of land that we're talking about here and how it is difficult to draw those comparisons with, you know, Scandinavian countries that are dealing with less forests when we're dealing about, when we're talking about a landmass rather that is, you know, a portion of it is, a large portion of it is yeah. unmanaged. And like, what do you do to possibly bridge the gap to just have more control and oversight over the forest? It gives you just, it makes you think about just how big Canada is and um i would be just very keen to know like now that people are kind of workshopping solutions probably now as as the summer kind of comes to an end what those will will look like but was that only surprising to me just like trying to wrap my head around just like the size of canadian forests and really how much space we're talking about here it's pretty hard to wrap your head around the scale of it i think you know when we talk about 12 million hectares being burnt and maybe 30 million hectares by the end of the summer, which I think were the figures that Derek threw out there. That's uh, hard. It's pretty difficult to imagine how much that is when you get on, you know, scales that large. And then, you know, it's only a relatively small fraction of the total forests in the entire country. So that's even more difficult. It's like, uh, you know, understanding the scale of the ocean almost. It's just, it's just, too big to imagine for me, at least in my limited, uh, <laughs> my limited intelligence. But I guess the other thing that I was interested in, and I, it sounds like it's maybe too early to tell and we'll see how it plays out. But if this is going to be another supply shock situation, like we saw during COVID and we got into that 
a little bit with Derek, but how that's going to play out over the rest of the summer and then moving out of wildfire season, I guess. Are we going to see those prices go up again in a way that uh, maybe they similar to how they moved during the pandemic? Um, and if so, is this another part of the inflation story that we're tracking? Is that going to have some sort of impact on that that might move interest rates as well? Like, It'll be interesting to see how this all plays out at a, a macro scale as we uh, you know, get the immediate emergency under control. Definitely. And like one thing that you can certainly appreciate kind of heading into the second half of the summer is just like, just how difficult these decisions are to make. I think another thing that comes with the, the scale is that, I mean, thank goodness for all the first responders that are here from Canada and all over the world. There's so many people, you know, fighting this, but there still isn't, you know, enough resources to fight everything at the same time, you know, we're learning and that these are all trade-offs every single day that these first responders and the people managing the situation are making every single day. It's kind of like a weird, like weird chess game to kind of figure out just like the right pieces to move to make sure that communities are kept safe and enough fires are kind of, you know, kept under control. And um, certainly like I just, I'm, I'm, you know, looking forward to, to, to see the situation kind of start to, to mitigate, but it's been tragic, the effects of it so far. Yeah. Well, one thing I do feel very confident about, in my opinion now, is that we should just hire more firefighters. That's the first thing that we should do. Hire them, whatever pay them more, the we pay need, them whatever they want. Absolutely. And, that's our and if they just have to sit around for a few months during the year because there's not enough fires, I'm totally fine with that. I think that's absolutely. where we can have some slack in the system and it's okay. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people would agree with you. All right. Well, should we leave it there? I think so. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. You can follow me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And if you enjoyed this episode and want more, you can find all of our episodes by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. And one small favor to ask, do go to Spotify podcast app or the Apple podcast app and leave us a review. It really helps us grow and reach more people. We'll see you next week.